Well, please do take your Bibles and turn now to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, where we pick up at uh, verse 13, and we'll read all the way through to the end of chapter 53. This is the fourth of Isaiah's servant songs. Isaiah 52, picking up at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is brought before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of our Lord will stand forever. When God justifies the ungodly, Ray Ortland once wrote, he upsets the whole moral order of the universe. The gospel says that God justifies the ungodly. What does that mean? It means that God declares guilty people innocent. It means that God treats bad people as if they were good people. 
God accepts unacceptable people. God honors shameful people. God treats fools and harlots with royal dignity. It is, in a sense, incredibly unfair. We like to think that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Karma makes sense to us. What goes around comes around. If you make your bed, you'll lie in it. You will harvest what you have sown. On the one hand, we could attribute that to the legalistic posture of our hearts, our prideful belief that we can secure our eternal destiny if we just do the right thing in the right way at the right time. We recoil at any notions of helplessness and vulnerability. We like to think that we are strong. We like to think we are able and that we can secure salvation in our own strength. So, we are predisposed to be attracted to ways of thinking that says that good things happen to good people because we like to think that we are good people. Or, less cynically, we could say that this reflex is rooted in our innate sense of justice that comes from being made in the image and likeness of God. What is God? The fourth question of the Shorter Catechism asks, God is a spirit, infinite and eternal and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a God of justice. He's not capricious or unpredictable, but perfectly righteous in all of His dealings with His creatures. He says that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. But that adoration of God, it contains within it a logical problem, doesn't it? The presupposition of Moses' prayer, the whole reason why he is praying for Israel in Numbers 14 is that they are guilty. They have rebelled against God. They have thought unworthy thoughts of God. They have accused Him of wrongdoing and cruelty. Numbers 14, verse 2, the people of Israel are grumbling against Moses and Aaron, and the congregation say to them, would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They're guilty. In fact, the request that follows Moses' adoration of God's justice and righteousness is Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love. There is a logical problem in Numbers 14. How can a guilty people have their iniquity and transgression pardoned? How can God retain His fundamental justice and righteousness and yet forgive the sins of His people. It is the great question in all of Scripture. 
It is the great elephant that stands in the corner of the room in the whole unfolding story of redemption, this great pregnant question of how any of God's gospel promises and covenant commitments could ever come true for a people who are fundamentally not good, for a people who break His law in thought and word and action, for a people who dare to transgress the majesty of the glorious and holy triune God. It's the great question in Isaiah. It's the great pregnant question. It's the elephant in the room through all of the book of Isaiah. And this latter half of Isaiah, from chapter 40 on, the gospel has gone out to the exiles in Babylon, and Isaiah has proclaimed good news of great joy that there is forgiveness of sins to be found if they just return to the Lord in faith and repentance. But we can imagine, can't we, a thoughtful Jew, knowing the Scriptures, knowing Numbers 14, we can imagine him sitting in Babylon hearing the reading of Isaiah's promises of God's forgiveness, those amazing promises of God's comfort for his sinful people. We can imagine him shouting almost in exasperation, but, but God has said that he will by no means clear the guilty. And He has said that He will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. How on earth can this be true? How can they be forgiven by a just and righteous God without the whole moral order of the universe being turned on its head? And it's here that that question finds its answer. The exiles. In fact, anyone and everyone who cast themselves upon the Lord in faith, the guilty, sinners, this passage tells us, can be forgiven, but only through penal substitutionary atonement. In other words, the only way that we can be forgiven by a just and righteous God without Him compromising a fundamental component of His being is if another comes and stands in our place and bears the guilt of our sin and the punishment due to it and satisfies the demands of the law that stand against our sin. The only way that we can have our guilt expunged and in the place of our guilt be credited as actually righteous and good before the throne of God is if another comes and stands in our place. That's what Isaiah describes here. Now, we've had three servant songs before this, and in them the great work of this great singular Savior has been described from different angles. This man would come, you remember, in Isaiah 42, in the first song, he would come and he would restore equity to Israel. Here are the people of God who have 
departed from their God-ordained role. They have not loved him with all of their mind and all of their soul and all of their heart. They have turned into this ugly society in which one has consumed another and used another for their own advancement, warping and twisting who they were supposed to be. But yet, that first song told us, this man would come, this servant would come, and he would restore Israel into that righteous and holy society that they were intended to be living in joyful submission to God their King. But this restoration, the second song in Isaiah 49 told us, would come through a proclamatory ministry, this servant coming as a prophetic figure, who through the words of his mouth would reestablish justice and devastate those who opposed the rule of God. And in the third song, you remember, we were told that this Redeemer would not achieve this redemption from a remote position, but that he would come down among us and personally wrestle for our redemption. No delegated salvation, but this servant of God coming himself down amongst his people to lead them out of their sinful captivity. But now, these great predictions of the Messiah let out in this final and cumulative song in which the Savior is described as coming as not only for sinners, but in the place of sinners. Here it all lets out, this pregnant question suddenly lets out the means by which this servant will save the people of God is not just by coming in and among His people, but coming in and among them to the extent that He will be identified with them so that He can act as their representative agent, their advocate before God, so that He will be able to bear the curse of their sin. This Savior will not just come as a moral example, and He will not come just as a noble leader, but now we are told He will come and He will inhabit the spiritual desolation of His people. He will make it His own, and He will bear all of the consequences of it. He will be identified with His people so that He will be considered inseparable from His people and so able to stand in their room and stead as their representative, as their substitute, and in their place do all that needs to be done, all that could not otherwise be done, and secure redemption for His people. It's interesting, isn't it, that this song begins, chapter 2, verse 13, he's described as, as acting wisely, Another way of saying that the servant will know what to do and how to do it, and that he will be faithful to the task that he has been sent. And the result of his faithful obedience is that he will be high and lifted up and that he shall be exalted. And in other words, he will be vindicated and glorified because of his faithful dedication to his task. It's as if Isaiah or more properly, God, through Isaiah, knowing the dramatic description of salvation that is about to follow, knowing the, the devastating description of salvation that is about to follow, 
begins this song by anchoring us to the knowledge that this servant will achieve his objective. We are told that there's no doubt he will obtain the salvation of his people. It is a gracious way to begin this narrative, because what follows on is a description of redemption that is far more gruesome than we could have ever imagined. We have heard of the servant coming as a mighty conqueror, and so he is, right? Verse 15, he shall sprinkle the nations, and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. That is an image of power and glory. The image of the servant as this global, even cosmic conqueror, a Savior who will bring salvation, that will cleanse the nations, that will be effectual beyond the bloodline of Abraham, and bring a redemption from sin that will go as far as the curse is found. But verse 14 quickly introduces us to the somber means by which this redemption will be achieved. The servant is mighty and glorious and exalted, but yet his human appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You, you understand that image. It is more than one commentator put it. That verse is telling us that the work of redemption undertaken by the servant will not result in those who witness it asking, is this he? But rather it will result in them asking, is this human? It's the image of redemption taking such a toll on him, the work of salvation so marring and twisting him that he hardly looks human anymore. It's this image that's described further as we go on. And to the second stanza in verses 1, 2, and 3, we learn that when the servant appears, he will not appear as we might expect. The expectation is that he would come as a mighty warrior king. It fits, doesn't it, with the previous servant songs, those songs describing his power, describing his devastation of his enemies, that second song saying that he does it with nothing more than the words of his mouth. We won't go over it again, but, but you know that image even just from movies that the strongest man in the room is the man who doesn't lift a finger but simply speaks and it is done. That's the image of the second song, a man so powerful and glorious that simply by the words of his mouth he is able to upend all of creation, gathering Israel out of the hands of their enemies, the servant Savior coming as this ultimate power broker, outstripping the glories even of Nebuchadnezzar, who had appeared to the Judean exiles as the master of the universe. But here the servant, with just his words commanding and his will being done, the world, even the forces of evil falling in line and obeying his commands. It was that expectation, you know, that continued on well into the first century when Jesus Christ appeared as this servant. He came, of course, not from Jerusalem, but from Nazareth, from the back of beyond, from the country, from the sticks, of, from nowhere of any importance. You remember Nathaniel's now 
infamous question in John 1:46. Philip comes to him. We can imagine him running. Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what is Nathaniel's response? To praise God and give glory and to rejoice that the Savior has come? No. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like to Nathaniel's mind, this is preposterous. But what do you mean that the Messiah has come from Nazareth? There's no glory in Nazareth. There's no royal lineage in Nazareth. There's no prestige in Nazareth. Of course, it's exactly what Isaiah says here. It's what Isaiah had said all the way back in chapter 11. How did he describe the coming of the Messiah there? He described him as coming as a root from the stump of Jesse. Not as a mighty oak, at least not in the beginning, just a, a root from a stump. If you're not paying attention, you'd miss him. In fact, many in his own generation did miss him. So as Isaiah says, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, the sense here not being so much that of an emotional despising, but more in the sense that he had come into the world and he was deemed not worthy of any attention or respect. It's what we see when Jesus stood in the synagogue in Nazareth amongst the people who had known him the longest. In Luke 4, 21, after reading from Isaiah 61 and the description of the Messiah there, Jesus says to the congregation, to his home congregation, referring to himself, today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what is their response? Luke 4, 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which there was their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Even Mark 3.21, Jesus' own family, his brothers. Mark tells us even just a few verses on that even Mary is there. Mary to whom such glorious things about her son had been told told by the angels, they come and they proclaim that Jesus is out of his mind. It's the only explanation that they could muster for what he was doing and how he was acting. It was no wonder then that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. What does John say in his prologue? He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And it would be bad enough if that was the extent of his suffering. It would be bad enough because that is awful by itself. To think that our Savior had to suffer at all to secure our redemption is, is a thought horrible enough that it ought to make you tremble. But it was not that he was just regarded with contempt. He was, verse 7 says, attacked, oppressed, afflicted, even killed, cut off from the land of the living. And, and why? Well, not for cause. 
Verse 9, he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You remember the chilling verdict of Pilate declaring to the crowd about Jesus, I find no guilt in him. He was wholly innocent. The witnesses brought by the Pharisees were unable to get their story straight because any accusation of wrongdoing was entirely fabricated. His whole life was one of fidelity to the law. His whole life was one of love to God with the entirety of his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength. The entirety of his life was one of love to neighbor, even the love of his enemies, and a doing good even to those who did him harm. Even to the point that as Jesus addressed Judas at the Garden of Gethsemane, as Judas arrives with this murderous mob ready to lynch Jesus, how does Jesus address him? He turns to Judas and he calls him friend. The life of Jesus, you understand, one not just of fidelity to the law, but one of abundant fulfillment of the law, a life of total love that only ever sought the good of the other regardless of the cost, a life of mercy, a life of compassion, a holy, innocent life, a holy, righteous life, Rightly did Pilate declare in the words that will stand against him forevermore, I find no guilt in him. So why such suffering? Why such rejection? Why such sorrow? Why such a death? Well, encapsulated in the third and central stanza of the song, we find the reason because in his suffering and in his death, he was standing substitute for his people, bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. Because at the very core of his work, described at the very core of this song, lay his union with his people and his carrying their sin and their misery, our sin, our misery, your sin and your misery. It's why Jesus was baptized. You ever wonder why on earth Jesus would undergo John's baptism? A baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins, when he had no sins to repent of. It was the beginning of his public ministry. It was the beginning of Isaiah 53, being fulfilled in the life of Jesus, His identification with His people. Why was Jesus baptized with a repentance for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, Christian? It was the beginning of the road to Calvary. It was the beginning of the road to the cross. Jesus identifying with His people, now bearing the guilt of their sins, standing in their room and stead, entering into the misery that their sin brought. And He would go to the cross, and He would be, verse 5, wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. At His cross, He would bear the chastisement that our sins deserved, the Lord laying on Him the iniquity of us all. In Romans 6.23, Paul writes that the wages of sin is death. That is the witness of all of Scripture. What did God say to Adam and Eve in the garden? that if they broke His law, 
If they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did he say? They would surely die. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall die. To transgress the holiness of God is to commit a capital crime. The weight of the penalty pinned not so much to the sin itself, but to the glory and the dignity of the one who has been sinned against. And we have all sinned. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. John Calvin wrote that a man might convince himself that he is handsome until he looks in a mirror and beholds the spots on his face. And if you look in the mirror of the law, you will, Calvin says, contemplate your weakness, then the iniquity arising from it, and finally the curse arising from both. You can convince yourself that you're not that bad until you compare yourself to the standard of God's law. And when you look in that mirror, you see your weakness, and you behold your sin, but you are also brought face to face to behold the curse of God that stands against you in your sin, the capital punishment that your sins deserve for daring to offend against a thrice holy God. And how will you escape? How on earth can you ever be forgiven? How will you ever be accepted by this God that you have so sinned against? How will you ever be reconciled to Him? How will you, the unquestionably guilty, ever be declared not guilty? Only if another comes and stands in your place. Only if the servant of the Lord bears your chastisement, only if he takes your curse. What was it that Paul wrote in Galatians 3? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Or better, what was it that Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2, quoting this fourth servant song? Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, Isaiah says. But through the sacrifice of Christ, through his substitutionary atoning work, we have returned, we have been returned now to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. A 19th century Scottish minister and professor, a man called John Rabbi Duncan, once asked in a sermon, do you know what Calvary was? It was damnation, and he took it lovingly. That's it. That's this. 
how deep and full and rich, how lavish the love of God for sinners like you and me. Love that does not just declare a message of comfort to those wounded by sin, but a love that does all that is required to heal those wounds so that you can be at peace. A love of God so rich and full, so strong and determined that in Jesus Christ, God Himself would become incarnate, that He might go to the cross and bear the curse of His own law, that you might be set free from it. Do you believe that? Do you believe this gospel? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have not, do it now. This, this promise is for you. Jesus Christ, this great servant of the Lord, has done all that needs to be done to secure the forgiveness of your sins and reconcile you to God. And all you must do is reach out and lay hold of Him by faith. And so if you have not, do it now. Trust Him. Cast yourself upon Him. Hide yourself in Him. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. It is there for you. Receive it. Let us pray. Almighty God, what is there to say in response to such a gospel? What is there to say in response to such a glorious Savior? Perhaps all we can Declare is the words of your ancient servant, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Teach us more of the richness and the fullness of our Lord's atoning work. Teach us more of what it means for Him to be wounded for our transgressions. Lord, lead us deeper into this gospel that we might give you ever greater praise for all that you have done for us. Lord, bless us now as we come to the Lord's table as we see this gospel now laid before our eyes, as we discern it even by our senses in the bread and the cup, we pray that you would drive it ever deeper into us. Father, come and feed your people, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.